our next writer is called Irina Mettler. She's a Brighton-based writer, and her first novel, so we have two first novels called Starlings this evening, what are the chances, uh, was published in 2011 and was described by one critic as doing for Brighton what The Wire did for Baltimore, if you can wrap your heads around that. She's a founder and co-director of the Brighton Prize for Short Fiction and of the spoken word group Rattle Tales. Her stories have been published internationally and shortlisted for the Manchester Fiction Prize, the Bristol Prize, and the Writers and Artists Yearbook Award. Arena's new short story collection on the theme of fame, 15 Minutes, is out now with Unbound. May I present Arena? Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm going to read a very short piece from uh, 15, 15 Minutes, um, which is a short story collection about fame, um, as, as she said. Um, and this one is a story called How Malcolm Malone Became the First Punk in Pontefract. <laughs> the blue guitar came first, all curves and shade, then the face, powdery and indistinct, Images overlaid like a dream. Look at the state of that, said Dad. What is he wearing? I was in the middle. Me and Malcolm wedged on one sofa cushion while Dad took up one to himself. As soon as the cameras focused on David Bowie, I felt Malcolm tense. He suspended his breathing on the inn. I looked at the face on the screen clown white and high cheekboned, smoky eyeshadow on the lids, the faintest gloss on the lips, parrot red hair spiked and glossy. His tongue slipped slowly along his top lip. Malcolm still hadn't breathed out. They get weirder by the day, said Mum, slurping her tea. I looked at the tall coat hanger frame draped in its bright patterned catsuit and smiled. I think he looks smashing, I said, and nudged Malcolm in the ribs. What about you, our kid? He let out his breath in a puffball and looked at me with wide, startled eyes, opened his mouth, but didn't close it around any words. When he looked back at the TV, David Bowie had his arm draped around Mitt Ronson and was gazing into his eyes as he sang. There was a shock silence in our living room. Dad coughed and slurped his tea. The arm was removed. Mum tutted. David Bowie stared directly at me and Malcolm, pointed his finger as if to say, you, yes, you, you and me, our time has come. Malcolm still hadn't closed his mouth, though he was breathing in and out now at least. That stopped a second later, when Bowie draped his arm around Ronson again, more deliberately this time, lingering over it, his polished nails brushing the gold of the other man's clinging catsuit. Malcolm slumped against the back of the sofa in surrender. There's no need for that, is there, said Dad. Are they puffs or what? Mum nodded. Shouldn't be on the telly, should it? Isn't there a law against it? I forget who was on next. 
It all seemed so irrelevant after that. Malcolm's face was burning, and when I looked at him, I saw he was actually crying. You are right, love, said Mum. Not well, he spluttered, standing unsteadily and running from the room. Dad pulled a face. What's up with him? Is it PE tomorrow? Go and see, love, said Mum, looking at me. He was lying on his bed, face down, his arms over his head. Malcolm? He tensed. I went in and sat next to him, my hand on his skinny back. What is it, love? It's just the telly, you know. It's not real life. He looked up at me, eyes darting. Don't say that, Elaine. That was the most real thing I've ever seen. He sat up and hugged his knees. I could see a pulse on his neck, as fast as a hummingbird. What I mean, though, is... What did I mean? It's just for the telly, not for Market Street or Schooler Out. It's all right for them. They're pop stars. You're not. He frowned, then, sensing my concern, smiled and nodded. I'll take you into town on Saturday, and you can buy it, just us two. We can have a wimpy after the record shop. Helen handed me a biscuit. Mum and Dad were on their way. Malcolm was in surgery, internal bleeding, a broken leg and collarbone, a fractured skull. The doctors said he'd be okay, but he needed fixing up, and they need to keep an eye on the skull fracture. I sipped at the lukewarm milk that passed for tea at the hospital. What happened, Helen? Why today? I mean, I know he's different, but I thought it had all stopped. This is so brutal. You didn't see him this morning, then? What? No. He was up early, left before I was even awake. He's a brave little bugger, I'll give him that. He went to school in full makeup with his hair dyed, nail polish on. I thought you must have helped him. Our Kevin said it was, went quiet when he walked into class. He just sat down as if he looked like it every day. Then when Mr Matthews came in, he sent him straight to the head who suspended him on the spot. Everyone thought he'd gone home, but he was in the park after school. Kevin said it was like he was waiting for them. That's when he came and got me. I couldn't swallow my tea, had to spit it back into the cup. I put it down on the floor under the chair and tried to piece everything together. He must have waited until we were all asleep. Mum kept henna in the bathroom cupboard for when the greys threatened to take over, and my makeup bag had been downstairs in the lounge all night. It would have taken him hours to get his hair that bright and to hack it into shape. There are hairdressing scissors under the sink. I never heard a thing. I was dreaming of pop stars and cat suits, and I expect he was too, even though he was wide awake. David Bowie, I said. Right, said Helen. I saw it too, like nothing else. It made a big impression on our Malcolm. He ran upstairs crying. Helen smiled sadly and sipped her tea. The double doors swung open and mum and dad walked in, flustered and full of questions. <laughs>
Um, so our next author uh, is a big treat, Rosie Wilby, uh, who's been doing a stand-up show in Edinburgh this um, summer. She's appeared many times on BBC Radio 4 and at major festivals, including Glastonbury and Latitude. She's a very funny woman and a finalist at Funny Women 2006 and Lester Mercury Comedian of the Year 2007. She's been touring award-winning solo shows internationally ever since. And her writing's been published in the Sunday Times, New Statesman and more. She's just published her first book, Is Monogamy Dead? And it's getting rave, rave reviews and follows a TEDx talk of the, sex, of the same name. Uh, so I'm going to present Ro Rosie to you now. I've read the book. It's great. You're in for a treat. Oh, fantastic to be here. Now, uh, yes, it is called Is Monogamy Dead, which was the middle part of a trilogy about love and relationships. Um, it, a trilogy of solo shows, only one book so far. Uh, but uh, how many people are here with their partner? Few, few people, because I, I love watching the body language between couples, especially, you know, you see a couple and one of them is shorter than the other. I find myself fascinated and thinking, how did they get together? Did their eyes meet across a seesaw? But I'm going to... Uh, this was obviously... There, there is kind of serious science stuff in the book about relationships and our language around love and friendships and all of these kind of things. But I'm going to read quite a fun chapter about when I went to uh, find some sense of sexual adventure at the lesbian sauna. Have the men's ears pricked up now? Uh, yeah, the lesbian sauna, yeah, yeah. I, I am a lesbian. I wasn't just a straight woman. I thought, I'm going to try a bit of that. Although there were some women who were on that journey. Uh, so here we go. I'd been too much of a monogamous prude to realise, but lesbians are sometimes allowed to have casual sex. <laughs> Once every two months, apparently. Because that's how frequently the locker room, a gay sauna just off South London's leafy and affluent Cleaver Square, is hijacked by the women. Now that I was writing a show on sex and fidelity, I could visit under the comforting guise of research. I'd been told tales of wild excess about what went on there behind the clouds of steam and sweat by gay male friends. Would women behave with similar animalistic abandon? I heard about the sporadic women's event through my friend Belle, who described herself as solo poly and explained this as engaging in multiple ethically non-exclusive relationships while abandoning the hierarchical structure of a primary relationship. <sighs> Although she cared very much for her lovers and friends, her key commitment was to herself and her own path. To remind herself of this, she wore a single wedding ring around her neck on a chain. She had effectively married herself. To her, a lesbian sauna was no big deal. She had nobody to report her whereabouts to, and the partner she was with would totally get it anyway. Whereas to me, its very existence was big neon sign, informing me just what a clueless and closed-minded idiot I was. I didn't dare fantasize about actually doing anything sexual with a stranger in a public space, but the mere act of putting myself in this environment was enough to start pushing at the oppressive asexual straitjacket I'd found myself tied up in. Belle and I agreed not to cramp one another's style. I would leave her to her own devices or vices. Yet if I was in any way uncomfortable, I was to go and discreetly belch in her ear. It was the most ridiculous safe word ever. 
I wasn't even sure I could belch on demand, yet she had once heard a friend and his wife using it as a code, and the idea had tickled her enough to copy it. An amiable, bespectacled butch, who seemed to be in charge, proposed an icebreaker game in the cramped bar upstairs. Even though most of us were still clothed and sipping milky tea from polystyrene cups, there was a giggly frisson, the airless space with pheromones. The butch clapped her hands like a PE mistress rounding up her girls and explained, we must speak to the person next to us. Then when she rang a bell, switch our attention to somebody else. I inquired if the bell system would be employed later on encouraging us to rotate partner once we started getting off with each other. This got a big laugh. I could have happily gone home then. But then a slender-toned woman, a few years my senior, strutted over. I'm Helen, she purred, fluttering eyelashes thick with mascara, brownie-gray in curls cascading around long earrings, droplets of silver pointing down to her glistening neck and chest. Rosie, I said, instinctively offering a handshake, a formal and robust greeting to legitimize what might follow. What do you want to do tonight? <gasps> oh, God. I hadn't prepared for this question. I thought to myself I wouldn't mind an intelligent discussion on Britain's rule in the European Union. Instead, I gulped. I looked over at Belle, wondered if I could employ our code this early into the evening. A fear gripped me I hadn't felt since I was a teenager, and Mum's friend Monica had asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up. How can you answer? How does anyone know this was the same if I say spanking just for the hell of it? She might say, I'm into that, let's go. I might have to go through with it just out of politeness. Fortunately, the bell rang. A pretty Asian femme, barely half my age, whirled round to catch my eye, long painted fingernails giving her sexual tourism away. You look like a film star, she proclaimed. <laughs> Thanks, I said. Which one? I don't know, she laughed. This was immediately more comfortable to me than the first situation with Helen. <laughs> this girl clearly had no idea what she was doing, which meant I wouldn't be exposed to not knowing what I was doing either. Once we descended to the steamy, dimly lit basement, a blonde woman started nonchalantly flicking through a magazine. A strange mix of aloof and slutty, she pulled down her bikini top to rest under her breasts. Then, in a moment of OCD, started folding towels and tidying. <laughs> this was hardly the hedonistic gangbang I'd anticipated. I imagined reporting back to my friend Don, the one person I told where I was in case I died and somebody had to be contacted. What happened, he'd say expectantly. Nothing, I'd say. But then, oh, the Asian girl leaned forward from the bench above and whispered, let's do something. Oh. Silently, I took her hand and led her out to the shower. After being in the cosy cocoon of the sauna, however, emerging into the drafty corridor felt like stepping into a blizzard naked. How do gay men cope with this temperature change? We turned on the shower and tried to kiss under its dribbly warmth, but it was on a timer. The water kept stopping. Let's go to the steam room, she suggested, not to be defeated. Well, the steam room was insanely hot, like climbing inside a kettle. There's no way I'd be able to stay in there long enough to make a woman orgasm. That shit takes time. We started kissing awkwardly, like kids playing spin the bottle. Then, as the steam parted, I saw a familiar face. I tried to concentrate, but kept looking over. Who's that? I thought, ah. Oh. And then I remembered, oh yes, she's a regular at my gigs, who often tweets me afterwards with not entirely welcome feedback. <laughs> I imagined her judging me this time, holding up a scorecard. Hi, Rosie. Hi, I blurted, sitting upright. And we all started chatting, as women do, and then went upstairs for another cup of milky tea. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
Thanks very much. Um, do come and buy the book, and I'll happily sign it. Um, and I've got an event called the Breakup Monologues in Vauxhall uh, a week on Wednesday. There's some festival brochures for And Watts Festival um, dotted around. Do keep in touch at Rosie Wilby on Twitter. Thanks very much. Thank you, Rosie. I told you you'd giggle. Uh, so we're going to travel in a slightly different direction now with Nick Harkaway, uh, who's a novelist and commentator. He's the author of the novels The Gone Away World, Angel Maker and Tiger Man, and a non-fiction study of the digital world, The Blind Giant, Being Human in a Digital World. His new book, Nomon, deals with a state that exerts ubiquitous surveillance on its population. A detective investigates a murder through unconventional methods that leads to questions about her society's very nature. May I present to you Nick Harkaway. Am I going to, am I going to need to lift that up? You're not going to be able to, here we go, hang on. Where are we? Oh, here we go. There we go, I'm a little bit taller than Zelda. Okay, uh, this is the, um, very light book that I started writing in 2013, um, wanting to warn you all that beneath the wishy-washy conservative conservatism of David Cameron, there lurked an authoritarian core. I'm a bit concerned this won't come as quite as much of a shock when the book comes out in November as it might have done in 2013. Um, but because the book is also about uh, semiotics and... Ooh, this is very... Ooh. I'm probably going to destroy it now. Semiotics and bank... Now I feel I might be slightly too short. Um, because the book is also about semiotics and banking and time travel and murder, I figure there might be one or two other things that you can occupy yourselves with, even if my astute political commentary arrives about 18 months too late. The death of a, wit of a suspect in custody, says Inspector Neath of the witness, is a very serious matter. There is no one at the witness program who does not feel a sense of personal failure this morning. She's looking straight into the camera, and her sincerity is palpable. A dozen different mood assessment software examines the muscles around her mouth and eyes. Her micro-expressions verify her words. As a matter of course, the more sophisticated algorithms check for the telltale marks of Botox and of bioelectric stimulators that might allow her to fake that painful honesty but no one really expects to find anything, and no one does. Polling data streams across the screen. 89% believe the witness was not at fault. Of the remainder of the population, the overwhelming majority believes that any culpability will turn out to be negligent rather than designed. Neath's own figures are even better. She has been called in to investigate the matter precisely because her personal probity is the highest ever measured. All but the most corrosively paranoid of the focus groups accept her good faith. It is a very good showing, even granting that the witness has consistently high approval anyway. All the same, the discussion of Diana Hunter continues in the public sphere, as it should, until it is eclipsed by the next of the killings. So poor old Diana Hunter, when they go into her mind to find out what terrible things she's been doing, they find four other a number of other personal histories that cannot possibly be there, of which this is one, or the beginning of one. You'll have to excuse me. He's Greek, but I'm not going to try and do a Yanis Varoufakis accent. We're just going to have to read that. 
There are no great white sharks in the Mediterranean. Actually, I know there are. There is a breeding population in the Sicilian Channel where the water is warm and rich. That's one of the things about all those refugee ships at Lampedusa. There's really not a worse place to have to swim for your life than right where they sink. But I'm not in the Sicilian Channel. I'm on a sport dive off Thessaloniki with a girl named Cherry, who, after three weeks of pneumatic screwing and no conversation, inexplicably announced this morning that she thinks she's going to be my wife. Maybe the shark will eat her. Except that she's away away, looking at a bit of fallen temple, and the shark is here with me. Not that it's really a great white shark, because there are no great white sharks in this bit of the Med. Or not many, just the one maybe lost and a little bewildered. I try to see the huge shape as hapless. It's not hapless, it's a fucking great white shark. It's not moving. Sharks have to move to stay alive. They need water flowing over their gills. This one is not moving, so perhaps it's dead. It shifts in the water ever so slightly. Button eyes blinking. Do sharks blink? Certainly look like a blink. Maybe I blinked. Professional courtesy. That's the joke, isn't it? A shark sees a banker in the water, doesn't eat him. You know why? Professional courtesy. <laughs> I'm sufficiently insane that I think if I take a photograph, it will make for some serious bragging rights. Oh, yeah, you know what I saw on a dive near Athos? Like, close enough to touch? Great white. No, I'm serious. Yeah, swam with it for a while, then it left. I thought you might say that, so suck on this unphotoshopped image of me petting the seven-meter torpedo of bikini-chomping death like my grandmother's puppy. Balls of steel? Steel is for shit. You know what Zeus has, my friend? You know what he tells his girls when he comes to them in the shape of a swan? He doesn't say he's got balls of steel. He throws back his head, spreads his arms, and he says, I am the king of the gods, the son of cross and rear, and the master of lightning. I am palaces and power and pleasure and treasure and appetite, walking around in tight pants and better than any of that crap. You know what I got? I got balls like Constantin Kyriakos. And hell, it's not like I can do anything else. If the shark wants to eat me, it is very much going to. Very quickly then, one more. As I say, there are several of these identities in Hunter's head. The universe has cancer. It has one tiny, appallingly deadly tumor which cannot be excised. In the future, the tumor will expand and it will eat into the universe until there is nothing left and then the cancer will be the universe, but we won't be in it will be dead, and in fact will never have existed at all because the cancer will have swallowed time and unraveled it, and nothing which has ever happened in this universe will exist anymore, even as history. Eh, there's a certain justice in that, because it's what our universe did in order to come into existence in the first place. It devoured what was here before, although you can't really say that, because whatever was here before never existed, and there was no such place as here. You see this cannibalistic behavior up and down the cosmic scale with stars and microbes and so on all eating their parents. There's a kind of spider which does basically the same thing. It's a perfectly ordinary event in the life cycle of a universe, but obviously it's unpleasant if it happens to be your universe that's being erased, and I don't really care if the next universe is going to be a kind of heaven where everyone is happy and there's no pain and no wickedness. I don't care if the next universe is the perfect one and this one is warped and disgusting, if other universes in their selfish little bubbles of reality give it a wide berth because it mutters to itself and smells. I don't care if the universe I was born in is the leper universe and the next one is the Christ, fuck the next universe, just fuck it. I don't like it, and I'm going to kill it. 
I'm going to kill it, and I'm going to hollow it out, and we are all going to live inside its corpse like a hermit crab in a shell, and I'm going to do the same to the one after that, and the one after that, and so on and so on forever, and that makes me some sort of monster, and I don't care. I am Nomon, occasionally called the Ashata Genesis, or sometimes the Desperation Protocol. Come with me if you want to live. Thank you very much. Uh, our final writer in this set is Bonnie McBird, who was born and raised in San Francisco and attended Stanford University, earning a BA in music and an MA in film. Her long Hollywood career includes working as a feature film development exec at Universal, writing the screenplay for the original Tron, and winning three Emmy Awards for documentary writing and producing. Bonnie fell in love with Sherlock Holmes, reading the canon, age 10, and has turned that passion into a Sherlock Holmes trilogy published by HarperCollins. Her debut novel, Art in the Blood, was published in 2015 and released in 14 languages. The sequel, Unquiet Spirits, is out now. Both are Victorian thrillers in the style of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So, enjoy the writing of Bonnie McBird. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm going to read a small selection tonight from book two of my trilogy called Unquiet Spirits. Um, in this story, uh, well, first I should say that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote 60 stories of Sherlock Holmes, 56 short stories and four novellas, but he didn't write any full-length novels. So there has to be some, some liberties taken once you expand what he did to a long form. So I could say that <clears throat> the two things that I did um, to make these work as long form, one is to make the, the, the cases very complicated because he's the smartest guy in the world, right? Otherwise he'd be done by page 30. <laughs> so the other thing is um, I like to put somewhat of a theme into these stories. Um, so the first one, Art of the Blood, had to do with the perils and the benefits of having an artistic temperament, which Holmes surely does. And this one is about what happens if you don't deal with the ghosts of your past. Uh, spirits has a double meaning. It uh, also has to do with a very famous Scots whiskey family and the scene I'm about to read, it has to do with ghosts as well. Uh, the scene I'm about to read takes place the first night that Holmes and Watson have spent in the castle of this family they're investigating. A girl has gone missing and turned up dead. So this castle is reputed to be haunted, and they have been put up in two rooms in a long corridor, which is the only corridor in this castle that isn't lit by electric lights. They have oil lamps and uh, candles, and it's not really up to date. So it's a scary, creepy place. Um, you always wonder in these stories, why do they go into the basement? <laughs> so anyway, um, so this is the first night. Uh, Watson has just come from a dinner and he wanted to tell Holmes about it. Holmes had stayed in, back in his own room to think. Uh, but when Watson comes back, Holmes is already asleep and the servant warns Watson not to leave his room at night.
It was some hours later when I awoke. The wind had come up again and was dancing around the stone ramparts of the castle with an eerie howl. One of my windows rattled. I sighed. The whiskey and overheated room, followed by all the water I had drunk, were making their effects felt. I now had need of the plumbing. I lit a candle and climbed down from the bed. The fire had dwindled to embers and the room was freezing. Should I venture into the hall? I argued against it for convenience and so pulled the chamber pot from under my bed. Holding the candle close, I noticed a crack in it and put it back. I did not believe in ghosts after all, and as a doctor, I had a high opinion of personal hygiene. Throwing on both my dressing gown and jacket for warmth, I left my room, pulling the door shut behind me and turned towards the darkened end where the latrine was located. The candles all down the hall still glowed faintly, but the end of the hall faded into utter blackness. As I advanced toward this darkness, I suddenly made out a glowing white shape that emerged into the black and seemed to hang suspended in the air. I gauged it to be the size of a small, slender adult. Vivid yet pale, nearly transparent, it hovered about two feet off the ground. It, I felt a damp chill and I shuddered. There was a diffuse, moon-like orb where a face might be expected. In a languid gesture, the figure raised an arm and held a hand out in front of itself. I found myself unable to move. I stared at the apparition, and two more candles suddenly went out, leaving the hall in darkness with only this glowing figure at the end. There was a low moan of anguish. It seemed to come from the thing itself. I felt a terrible rising in the back of my throat and a band constricting my chest. I do not believe in ghosts, I told myself. I do not believe. And then the candle in my hand went out as if blown by an unseen entity. In a flash, I was back in my room, locking the door behind me. I lit four candles in rapid succession, threw two logs on the fire and stirred the embers until they took hold. Only then did I remove my jacket. What had I just seen? Surely there was an explanation. I needed to talk to Holmes, but he was asleep in the room down the hall. I would have to go out of my room and towards the darkness and the apparition, if it was still there, to reach him. And then what would I do? Wake him to tell him I'd seen a ghost like a child running to its father? The whiskey was surely clouding my brain. I had drunk far more than was my habit. What I needed was sleep. I reluctantly made use of the room's facilities and then climbed into the bed. I awoke with a start some hours later. The fire had devoured the two logs and had once more succumbed to the cold drafts in my room. I opened my eyes. Only a faint orange glow came from between the tiles in the fireplace. And then I heard it. It was a terrible sound, a kind of gurgling, followed by the sound of strangulation or choking, a few seconds of silence, then a single keening sound. I got up, put on my dressing gown and my coat once more over it. I tiptoed to the door and listened. The same high-pitched groan came again off to the right. I felt in my coat pocket for my Webley, and I took the candle opened the door and stepped into the hall. The tiny flame threw only a dim glow for a foot or two. 
The candles were all out, and at the end of the moonlit corridor, the gloom faded into deep obscurity. But there was no floating apparition. Oh, I exhaled in relief. But then, the choking sound came again. I froze, and to my horror, Something pale and white emerged once again into the blackness at the end of the hall. It was a larger figure than before. It floated about a foot and a half above the stone pavers, and as I watched, it grew larger. The thing was advancing towards me. Stay where you are, I shouted, drawing the gun in my right hand and holding the candle before me. The apparition stopped moving. I blinked, trying to clear my vision. It wobbled slightly and then, from an alcove behind a pillar, removed a candle and held it aloft. I now discerned that the floating white shape was a nightshirt. Below this shirt were two thin bare legs, and above it, a pale and wan face. <clears throat> Holmes? Of course, Watson. Did you think me a phantom? No, 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 of course not. Um, I pocketed my revolver, and I hoped he'd not seen it. What is the matter? You look terrified. Uh, were you... Have you been in this hallway before, a few hours ago? No. I heard noises just now. I've been made sick by the soup, Watson. Either the chef was careless, or someone had creative thoughts about dispatching me. Did Mungo tell you to stay away from that end of the hall? He left me a note, which I disregarded. Why? A flood of relief washed over me, followed immediately by another thought. <clears throat> Do you think someone poisoned your soup? It is possible, Watson, but I had only one small spoonful before I detected something awry. I shivered suddenly in the dank cold. Have you any food, Watson? Yes, some biscuits. Bring them and all your blankets to my room. You can stay in the large divan in the sitting area. It is near the fire. I can see you're shivering. You must be cold. Um, <clears throat> it is cold, yes. Um, my fire's gutted out for the second time. Mine burns well. Come. Twenty minutes later, I had warmed up and was ensconced in blankets on a sofa near a roaring fire in Holmes's room. He had bolted the door, and to my surprise, stood a chair up against the latch to prevent entry. Really, Holmes, do you think someone might try to break in? Watson, until I can sort out this singular family, I think it best to stick together and remain on our guard. Thank you. Uh, so we're about to hear from Mr. Dave McGowan. He's born and bred in South London, 